0: Hi, everyone. My name is Lili Mulatu, and I'm practice manager for education in West Africa at the World Bank, covering most of the Francophone countries in West Africa. This podcast today is going to be looking into the World Bank's coach program and the guidance note that has been developed to look at the impact of structured, effective one-to-one support for teachers, in addition to a blog that's going to help us think through how to use the coaching process to improve this delivery of learning by teachers, especially in our countries. It's a huge pleasure to welcome Tracy Wilkowski, who's an analyst at the World Bank's Education Global Practice and focuses on a lot of our teacher development work. I'm also delighted to welcome Mpumi Mohokhluane, an education researcher working as the Deputy Director in the Research Coordination, Monitoring, and Evaluation Directorate at the National Department of Basic Education of South Africa. So welcome. It's a huge honor to welcome both of you, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. This podcast is going to use the findings from this guidance note, and we'll discuss how education systems will improve how they support the coaching of teachers by pedagogic leaders. and. Tracy Wilkowski will discuss with us how the key findings from this note are going to provide guidance to our country teams and help some of our countries set up this structure for a very strongly evidence-based in-service teacher professional development program. And just to make sure that we're not remaining at a theoretical level. We have the pleasure of welcoming Malelo or Mpumi Mughulwane, who will provide first-hand insights on some of the challenges that they've faced when implementing this program in South Africa. Tracy, let me come to you first. Can you start by telling us what was the motivation for this guidance note?
1: Sure, Lily. Happy to. So as Elaine mentioned, as part of the World Bank's coach program, we've developed a structuring effective one-to-one support technical guidance note. And the goal of this guidance note is to provide concrete guidance to policymakers and World Bank task team leaders that is based on available evidence on how to structure the delivery of ongoing support to teachers. And really what the note tries to answer is what the ideal ratio of pedagogical leaders to teachers should be, how frequently pedagogical leaders should visit teachers, and how long those observations and feedback sessions should be. We have a really strong sense from the literature that effective teacher professional development needs to include ongoing and individualized support to teachers to impact teachers' instruction and subsequently student learning but what's not so clear is what this looks like in practice. The motivation behind this guide is to provide answers to these questions. The guide offers explicit advice on how to structure the delivery of ongoing support to teachers along a spectrum, which varies depending on pedagogical leaders' level of expertise and the support provided to them.
0: that sounds great. So what are some of the findings from the note? how are countries able to set up the structure for this evidence-based and service TPD program that includes this one-to-one support?
1: Sure. So there are a number of factors that countries should keep in mind when designing an effective TPD program that includes one-to-one support. And I'll briefly summarize five high-level takeaways. So first pedagogical leaders should not simultaneously support teachers and act as their evaluators. This can both undermine trust and overwhelm inspectors. So from our sample, we found that programs that used inspectors to support teachers produced lower student outcomes than those that created a separate role for individuals to support teachers. But the reality is in a lot of systems, sometimes inspectors are the only people in the system who can play the role of the coach. So what should countries do in those settings? A really good example that we have that featured in the note is the TUSOME program, which used government inspectors, but they complemented this by enacting significant reforms which officially changed the role from an inspector to a coach. They reduced the workload of the inspectors and they had the support of an international implementation firm to provide additional pedagogical support and guidance to inspectors to help assist with this transition. So there's a lot of things at play to make that a success. Second is it's crucial for pedagogical leaders to visit teachers on an ongoing basis. We know that sustained duration in having pedagogical leaders provide support to teachers is associated with stronger impacts on teacher practices and subsequently student learning because teachers have more opportunities to refine what they're learning and apply these new practices with their coaches. But it's really important to caveat here that a high frequency of visits doesn't necessarily ensure high quality and that ultimately high quality is the most important piece of the relationship between a pedagogical leader and a teacher. Another key takeaway is that pedagogical leaders should observe teachers for the full lesson, and this enables them to understand what's going on in the classroom and where teachers need support at any given lesson. Fourth, and maybe most relevant, is that given the reality that the COVID-19 pandemic has created, governments are really keen to know if or how teachers can be supported remotely. And as a starting point, the effectiveness of a virtual model is conditional on resources. You need access to broadband electricity and the technology to provide support remotely. If those conditions are in place, pedagogical leaders can provide remote support and they tend to interact with teachers more frequently, but this is usually paired with some kind of in-person training or support to complement the remote support. And lastly, and most importantly, Programs that focus on providing ongoing support to teachers must be embedded within a larger system infrastructure, and this system should be focused on supporting, motivating, and developing teachers that is aligned to this one-to-one support cycle.
0: Great. So one more question for you, Tracy. In the note, you make this distinction between high and low structured programs.
1: So what's the difference? A key difference between these models is the capacity of the pedagogical leaders in the system. And when I say pedagogical leaders, I mean anybody who is in the system providing support to teachers. So this can be a principal, a coach, even an inspector in some cases. And so a highly structured support model uses structured teaching and coaching materials like teacher's guides. This model can be really effective, but only if pedagogical leaders are provided with this high quality materials, training, and time to prioritize the tasks. And often these materials are developed with the assistance of an implementation firm. So a good example of a program that we highlight in the note is the Tusome Early Grade Reading Activity, which used government inspectors to support teachers and it operates on national scale they had significant impacts on student test scores, but one could argue that part of the success for the program hinged on it being supported by a strong implementation firm. And mm-hmm. this firm developed the associated teaching and learning materials. The firm trained the government inspectors and they provided ongoing support to those inspectors. They even provided them with tablets that had all these materials embedded so that the inspectors could access them at any point. A low structured model, in contrast, relies on pedagogical leaders who demonstrate deep expertise in the content or pedagogy that they support teachers on. So here the emphasis is not on monitoring teachers' implementation of a teaching guide, but providing more tailored support based on the specific needs that a teacher has. And they provide this based on their own pedagogical expertise An ability to decide which areas teachers need the most support on. So we also highlighted a program like this in the note from Peru called the multi-grade pedagogical support model. It's also operating at a national scale. And in this model, the government hired exceptional teachers as pedagogical leaders to do this. They only hired individuals that had previous teaching experience. And that also had previous coaching experience to be eligible to fill that role. And the structure of either of these programs would have implications on how many teachers a pedagogical leader could support and how long they can provide feedback for. It's important to note that it's often the case that education systems may start off with a limited supply of highly skilled pedagogical leaders, and they'd be at the more highly structured end of the spectrum but they can move toward increasingly autonomous models over time. So often the structuring that's provided by scripts can help embed good practices and make them more frequent and habitual for pedagogical leaders. And over time, they can develop more discretion in how they support teachers and, and move toward a low structured model.
0: Okay. Wow. That's pretty fascinating for me. You've had the unique experience of overseeing the implementation of this program on the ground. Can you tell us what that's been like? Sure. So
2: maybe a little bit of background. I'm part of the research section of the National Department of Basic Education in South Africa. We're a concurrent function, but um, the national office is responsible for policy design and monitoring. In our section, our specific function is around research, monitoring and evaluation. Specific to this work, we do research that innovates or tries to figure out different ways of supporting program managers, so supporting the main function of education, so curriculum, teacher development or assessment. And as part of that, since 2015, we've been working on supporting reading in the first three grades of schooling, so what we call the foundation phase, and we've run two RCTs, one focusing on three interventions that um, we evaluated against each other for reading in home language and a second experiment that took the coaching and compared two coaching interventions to each other in-person coaching versus virtual coaching but this time focusing on English as a first additional language and subsequent to that we've had two scaled up Still studies, but yeah, innovating and trying to see what our lessons from the first and second early grade reading studies look like when we try and implement them at a broader scale.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. And the relevance for the other countries on the continent is huge.
1: Could you also tell us a little bit about the various studies that your team has conducted and what the main findings of those studies have been and how this is affecting policies moving forward for the government of South Africa?
2: So the first early grade reading study focused on home language and had the exact same materials um, or inputs that we used. It was what you will call a highly structured program. We had lesson plans that were integrated with support materials like flashcards, posters, et cetera, that were complemented with training. And the difference then between the two interventions was... The first one just had what I've described, so materials, lesson plans, and training twice a year, whereas the second intervention overlaid that with an in-person, on-site coach who visited teachers once a month to support them specifically on home language literacy. That happened for a year, and we supported, we tracked the children, so supported teachers and children in grade 1 in 2015, moved with the children to grade 2 in 2016, And then to grade three in 2017, there was a third intervention that we measured that had a completely different theory of change. It focused on a parental component. So if you work with volunteers from the community targeting parents who don't have high literacy levels themselves, would you be able to change outcomes in the classroom? So not working with teachers at all in this third intervention. We were fortunately able to assess these learners over time. So we've had five waves of data collection and we saw at the end of two years that the intervention that had coaches had a statistically and educationally meaningful impact. And we try and think and frame it in different ways. But I think a way that's intuitive to understand is to say, Children in the coaching intervention were 40% of a year of learning ahead of their counterparts or the control group who had schooling as usual. Based on this, we then took this lesson to the second early grade reading study. We'd proven that coaching works. We wanted to see if it could be more cost effective. So could we have virtual coaching and compare that to in-person coaching? And secondly, would it work for a second language? And so we brought in a virtual component to it. teacher's In the second study, teachers had on-site coaching, same model as the first study, but then had a new treatment arm where there was one virtual coach to about 80 teachers. And all teachers in that intervention got tablets. Those tablets had their lesson plans, integrated materials, and the coach never visited their classroom, but gave them virtual support instead of on-site in-person support. And so those would be the two big studies and the difference between them. Maybe to conclude on that, the second study, the one with virtual coaching, uh, we unfortunately found that virtual coaching was not as effective in terms of impacts on learning outcomes. On-site coaching was highly effective, particularly for oral components of reading in English as a first additional language, but the virtual coaching had hardly any impact and in fact had a negative
0: impact for home language literacy. Wow, that's unfortunate for those of us who are looking for a magic bullet on the virtual support side. Uh, So are there any special considerations that policymakers should keep in mind when trying to use technology to provide this type of support to teachers?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We've learned several lessons that I think are important for the sector. We don't think that we have fully resolved or answered the question on virtual coaching. So if others are keen to explore it and build on what we've learned, that would be um, a useful way of building evidence to answer this question. And so maybe to start off, I'd say the key considerations are just connectivity and local experience on connectivity. So we are, for example, as the Department of Basic Education in Gauteng, which is a very urban province. We had to get in touch with cell phone networks to check that the districts we wanted to provide these interventions for that are not in Gauding and are fairly rural, 70% rural, if they would have connectivity. And we had to build in a buffer for that and have the application firstly as zero rated, so free to use but also as downloadable onto your tablet so that you don't need connectivity to use it. And then we also did a bit of research and try to find out what the security and threat is about using technology. Are we adding a risk to the schools and having these tablets amongst teachers? And so I think that would be something important to find out locally again and not necessarily from the national picture. And then we also explored and and checked other studies, hardware and software support processes and replacement rates. If you are having a virtual coach that actually in practice lives two to three hours away from intervention schools, what is the plan if a tablet no longer switches on and that kind of support? So it's important to think that through. Then moving on to the next category of things, it's important to think through your users and their profile. So South Africa has an older teacher population. In our studies, we had about 70% of teachers were over 40 in, in their age. Even if they had smartphones, they weren't necessarily using those smartphones in the broadest sense of the word. So that was important to check. And in fact, to build in a buffer of an extra day of training on the tablet specifically, And then just introducing things like games on the tablet as part of the training to make sure they know how to use all the buttons there. And then those two things, although are important, I think are often where we stop in designing our intervention. These next two are maybe the more pressing considerations. So the third thing is just looking at the exact program and content we are going to use tablets for. We found that a lot of people were good at speaking about using tablets, but we weren't really sure how exactly these tablets would be used, what the program would look like, how simple or complicated it would be. And in our case, it was a program designed specifically for these teachers with as few clicks as possible, very integrated, very intuitive to make it simple and easy to use. And then finally, and maybe this is where this explains the zero findings that we saw, what is the incentive to use this technology Um, What we found with in-person coaching is a person in your classroom or a person in your school who shows up consistently every single month probably has a better chance of building a relationship and inviting a teacher to work alongside them. But a person who is reaching out virtually does not necessarily have the same access and therefore teachers had more of an opt-in nature to the intervention And we didn't see the broad sign up that we saw with the in-person experience. So the question is, yeah, what would make these teachers opt in and how do you build relationships virtually that we've only been able to successfully build in-person?
0: That's pretty fascinating because from what you're saying, there's some of these that can be solved by addressing the issues of connectivity, tablets, use, exposure, sort of comfort and ease of use, et cetera. But- The last point in particular really speaks to the medium itself and how we would be able to facilitate an uptake among people who may not have a physical person to put them in a situation where they actually felt like they had to relate. Are you going to be testing these sort of special conditions that you've just described in upcoming iterations of your project? Yes.
2: Fortunately, we've had the opportunity to reflect on the findings and we have a further study that's taking place from this year until 2023 that has a blended approach to coaching, if I may say. So all teachers are getting their lesson plans on tablets again, but they are all getting, well, for the coaching interventions, getting a in-person support for the first year. We think that would solidify the relationship and hopefully mean that as things can transition to a more virtual space, the relationship is secure. And therefore we don't see what we saw in the second early grade reading study. Great.
0: So here's a question to both you and Tracy. Is one-to-one support enough to ensure good teaching? And if not, what else do you think we need? So in short, no,
1: it's not enough. The success of ongoing support to teachers, particularly when this type of support is offered at scale or through government systems, relies on a lot of factors that must work together to ensure that teaching practices improve. For instance, most ongoing support is part of a larger in-service teacher training program. And this has group sessions that support teachers and instructional materials, such as classroom observation tools, teacher guides, lesson plans, textbooks, all of these materials have to be of high quality and they need to be complemented by a strong implementation of the program. So not only just the high quality materials, but making sure that the master trainers and the pedagogical leaders are able to effectively train and execute the program.
2: So we found in our case, and maybe it's about the development stage, we're finding that the high intensity version of support is more important and therefore is more structured in general. So having a coach in the classroom without having structured lesson plans at this stage for us, I think would not be sufficient. Uh, we think the lesson plans give structure and guidance to where teachers are going. But we're also thinking about the duration of support. So maybe it's beyond an education question, but thinking through how long we think behavioral change takes. And uh, we've seen with our coaches, even in the on site in person intervention, it took the coaches and teachers at least four visits, so about four months to build rapport. For teachers to feel safe, for teachers to allow themselves to be coached beyond the mechanical aspect of allowing someone in your classroom. So that's about a quarter of a year already. That's just spent on building relationship and not really getting to the heart of coaching.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so in light of that, we would say the minimum duration needs to be at least a year and possibly even two years because some practices and particularly the practices that teachers are struggling with and not implementing in the curriculum are the harder to shift practices such as group guided reading. So in the first eight to 10 months, you see the form of it. You see teachers allocate their children into a group and they sit with them in the front of the classroom and kind of read with them. But actually, if you pay more attention to that, it's a lot of chorusing. So we've gone from whole class chorusing to small group chorusing. Exactly. And the teachers don't necessarily at that stage yet have the techniques of correcting children as they're making errors. And they're not changing those groups. So children are sort of in the same group for a while. And only that's towards the end of the year where you're able to give a teacher this kind of feedback And therefore, ideally, you would have a second year to allow them to embed this practice and to personalize it or or to own it, to feel like it is part of what they do and have support to do it well. And maybe to end, we think you need access to resources for replacement purposes from a system level. So as program designers, we don't want to give resources and then leave and a book gets lost or a teacher leaves with their lesson plans. And so that school sort of in the lurch, you want to give extra hard copies if you have a soft copy access for schools to be able to replicate and supplement what you've given them. And maybe finally we need buy-in from the school district and even the teacher and even amongst ourselves as researchers to allow schools to really adopt this new intervention or this new practice. So while the intervention itself might be two years and you leave as the external coach, if every single time a program ends, another one starts, and you're told to put aside your materials from the previous program and do this new thing. We never really leverage the long-term benefits of having invested for that two years. Mm-hmm.
0: I, think, I think that's absolutely true. Any lessons with regard to dealing with your older, more established, perhaps more experienced teachers? to accept these type of behavior change interventions?
2: I think we learned that working in good faith is helpful. So essentially explaining to the teacher or approaching them as an expert, as someone who has been doing this for a while and acknowledging that they have some knowledge and some expertise but trying to say to them, Our time has moved on. We now know better how to support children in these specific ways. And having an on-site in-person coach Especially helps with taking this idea home because the coach is able to model in this teacher's classroom with these 60 children or in that specific context mm-hmm. so that these new practices can work. And because of the ongoing support, the older teacher even can see the change amongst the children. So I guess it's about showing quick wins, easy e- quick and easy wins quite quickly and acknowledging that the teacher is an expert in their own right
0: fascinating i can see that this is going to actually be a game changer for every single country that i cover and i'm really looking forward to seeing some of these coaching practices go into our programs we have a few of them ongoing but maybe this is something that's going to be taking off across the region so tracy what's next How
1: can people access this guide and engage with this work? This note, as well as a few of the other coach guides, are currently available for public dissemination and consultation. They're available on our website. And we're currently seeking feedback on our work. We want to make sure that the recommendations that the note provides are comprehensive, clear, and useful. So we encourage you to check out our website or to write us at coach at worldbank.org with any reactions or feedback. In parallel, we're working on another note that aims to provide advice to policymakers on how to implement this one-to-one support. So this guidance note really talked about the design and structure, answering questions around the ratio of pedagogical leaders to teacher, the length of observation, and the next step is really thinking about what this coaching process would look like. Because as I mentioned, it's not just about the frequency of visits, but the quality of those visits. And so we're putting together a guidance note that will provide explicit guidance on how to design and support these high-quality one-on-one coaching interactions, in addition to a host of other policy level and school level resources that we are developing as a coach team, which will be coming out when we launch the program in September of 2021.
0: Great. Any last minute thoughts? Sure. Just to say, I'm
2: firstly encouraged by the guidance note and the amount of impact evaluations or careful research work that is happening amongst developing countries to try and learn how best to support the early grades but also to say we have started measuring sustainability. And initially, the impact I had um, mentioned was based on an assessment at the end of two years of implementation. We went up for a follow-up assessment at the end of four years. So children had been in the intervention for three years and had one year of no intervention. We were encouraged to see that the coaching intervention children had sustained the same magnitude of gains as they had been measured against in two years earlier. And the teaching intervention had sort of caught up to some extent, not to the same extent as the coaching intervention. But we were encouraged to see that sustained um, impact. So we supported children for three years in the foundation phase and were able to measure that in the fourth year. We're currently tracking those children again, I'm hoping we will have data in July on how they're doing now in grade seven. And so we would be able to answer a bigger question around how long does benefit sustain amongst children who receive a good foundation phase intervention. And
0: yeah, we look forward to sharing that with various audiences. Great. Thank you so much. Tracy me I think you'll have a lot of people checking in on both the coach materials, but also on the specific early grade reading studies that have been done in South Africa. So thank you so much for sharing this and have a great day. Thanks for having us.
2: I've enjoyed myself. Thank you. <music>